Welcome to the Trinity Radio Podcast. This podcast has a video component found at youtube.com slash Braxton Hunter. This means you might miss some visual aspects of the show, but it shouldn't have a serious negative effect. We'd love it if you'd run over to the YouTube channel real quick and subscribe. And if you enjoy this content, do us a favor. Take a moment to give us a five-star review on iTunes and mention a couple of things you like about the podcast. If you really appreciate the show, you can help make it better and get extra content for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash trinity radio. Enjoy the show. Hey, hey, hey. Welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm Jonathan Pritchett, and along with me is... Braxton Hunter. And first, I want to clear something up. We are not starting at the same time as Cameron. Cameron is starting at the same time as we are. We're usually here... We've been doing 1 o'clock on Fridays for a while now, so Cameron's kind of hoarding in on our space here, but that's okay. Uh, We'll watch his uh, Q&A sometime over the weekend, I suppose. But anyway, we're going to do our Q&A, which is going to be better than Cameron's because he's, you know, again, encroaching on our time slot, but whatever. Um, Today, we're just recovering because, and that's why when it says Q&A, you know that there's been zero show prep because we don't have anything to talk about other than answer questions because we've had a, what I consider to be one of the best weeks of 2020 and that that doesn't really that's not like a high standard given this year but for us it's still i mean it's far and away because we had steve greg from the narrow path on campus and we got to sit in for multiple hours of steve greg lectures shooting video and and things like that and he spoke at our church uh given his uh truncated version of the four views of revelation i spoke about what an hour and a half or so and it's just been fantastic. I have never... I, so Braxton and I, you know, in our field, in our real jobs, we're, you know, professors, seminary administrators, all that. So we talk to a lot of apologists and biblical scholars all over the country, and we visit with them when we go places and interact and all that. And none of them, in my opinion, can match... Steve Gregg, when it comes to just knowledge of the contents of the Bible. Now, we all have our areas, and we all know uh, a lot of bit about little chunks of, of things that, that probably Steve Gregg hasn't spent a lot of time reading those mountains of scholarship for whatever particular specialization scholars get into or whatever. But as far as having a mind that understands and knows the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and has it pretty much hyperlinked in his brain? I, I haven't met anyone com- that comes close to Steve Gray. What about you, Braxton? Do you, do you think? No, that's no. absolutely right. I mean, that's, yeah. eh, that's what I was saying to you, in fact, yesterday. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. just, it's, don't know anyone like that. So it's, it's quite a thing to talk to him about the Bible and about theology and stuff like that. And listening to his lecture, so we're kind of on a, on, 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 you know, coming off of a of a high, so to speak. Uh, Braxton would never know what that was like, but for those of us who um, 
have done things, you know, prior to our walk with the Lord, you know what that's like to come down off that. You're just like, whoa. You know what's like to come down from a spiritual high? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not the same. Anyway, but it's it's like one of those things. That it's just crashing from like overload of, of Steve Gregg, and it's it's been an amazing week. And for Trinity students, the, the, the material and content for the courses or his upcoming courses is going to be phenomenal. Um, he gave us copies of his new book, which I thought was nice. I was going to buy it, but because we had the 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 text in 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 a digital format, but he gave us copies of the book was super nice um you know just eating dinner with the guy found out that he uses resistance bands like i do that was awesome um so steve Gregg is a lot like me in many ways we can we can say that so yeah so it's just been a great week so we didn't uh yeah i know uh, punchbowl haircuts making comments about our diet cokes here's what happened on my way to work i stopped by ruler foods which is a kroger outlet to get uh, some citrus drop because I needed a soda and I wasn't paying attention. And so I bought regular citrus drop instead of diet citrus drop. So it's like a whole waste of a two liter. So like 65 cents. Uh, that's, you know, I'm going to give it to my kids, but uh, they, they, they don't drink diet soda, but I do. And it, so I had to get us some diet Cokes, but mm-hmm. anyway, so we're going to do Q and a and Nick Quint asked about, Theosis in Second Peter one four, you know, having our share in the divine nature. You want to know how does that work? I don't know. All of us Christians who believe in you know being filled with the Holy Spirit, united with Christ. I mean, it's not just like some sort of Eastern Orthodox thing. There's a sense in which we all believe in some kind of theosis. But when you ask about Second Peter one four, this is going to probably make uh, all of my Eastern Orthodox friends a little bit irritated because. What I see there about the power of God in us and us being able to share in the divine nature, Fusios, in that text, to me, I think of the the normal sense of uh, uh, Did I custom, just, did I just mess yeah, with your head? <laughs> custom or habit. You know, a lot of times we the, the word nature is fuzzy, and people think of you know, essence or substance or the the quiddity of a thing or whatever. But but I just think that passage is, is that, that text is just saying, talking about avoiding the corruption of the world because of evil desires and so forth. I, I, I just think it's talking about you're, you're sharing in the, the divine nature in the sense of, of you're getting better customs and habits to avoid that corruption of this world. And that's why he goes into... Uh, the very next session, uh, section, the very next verse, or maybe two verses down, where he's talking about behaviors and characteristics and traits that you need to develop for this life. And so I don't, I don't try to construct some spiritualized metaphysics about how uh, that all works, because I, I really think that the, the, the word nature there is being used in the sense of custom or habit. But uh, I, lots of people disagree with that so that's just one of those things where i'm in the minority but i don't always think like in in those metaphysical categories like that so i hope that answers your question but to me it just says partaking in the divine nature is partaking in the, the divine habits and customs of right living to avoid the evil desires of our former lives so there you go that that's that All question right. for nick quint uh but thank you for that question um 
that's nobody asked me about Peter because everyone cares about Paul except for me. So everyone cares about Peter and Paul, man. Why? Why? Why pick? Isn't this the very because thing, everyone thinks that isn't because this the very Peter, thing Paul Peter was got, getting on about in First Corinthians because people he was discouraging this people very think thing. that because Paul goes on about how he went off on Peter at Antioch because you know Peter. Uh, made a mistake and, and and backed away from the table fellowship and stuff that that therefore he's lesser than because and I I don't accept that but anyway uh, there's got to be other questions uh, I, by the way you showed me a note mm-hmm. and you got to hand me that note now and talk for a minute so I can read what you wrote because I did not even see what it said okay so, so this is on the fly um, yeah. Okay, um, let's see. I, I see that there's a lot of stuff coming in a lot, uh, really fast. Um, yeah, so Pritchett, we got a super chat from Daniel Apologetics. We're not just reading super chats. It's just that there's a lot of stuff flooding in here real quick, and I don't want to forget about this. So um, Daniel Apologetics I'm gives, trying to decide if gives us five foreign monies. And he wants to know what Bible commentaries you recommend. Oh, great! Yeah, uh, I will uh, happily answer that. Uh, I don't. I don't recommend commentary sets or series. I recommend authors. Mm-hmm. And so, I always, I, I always like to get. Uh, I guess it depends on on the on the anything for anything for New Testament. I'm always if. Craig Kuhner, Ben Witherington, or David De Silva publish a commentary on any book in the New Testament, I get it. Uh, if Gene Green's Second uh, Peter Jude commentary, um, I'll get it. I like to get what Thomas Schreiner gets uh, when he writes a commentary. I usually disagree with most of it. He's wrong. He's not anywhere close to being right on a lot of stuff. Um, he's a Southern Baptist uh, ref- reformed commentator um but i always like to see what that crowd is saying and sometimes he 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 wanders off and and goes against the uh uh the normal reformed uh, interpretations and commentaries but rarely and um i like to see what he says just to if i'm gonna because he's i i really i really enjoy his writing even though i don't think he's right about much of anything that he says about any particular verse of the Bible. But I always like to see what... So, uh, for a Reformed guy, I'll, I'll pick up like a Thomas Schreiner commentary. He just updated his Romans one, uh, where he decided that he would change his mind on places where he was wrong, and that, now he's right. Uh, I like to read N.T. Wright um, and see what he, he's writing about. Lynn Kohick, um, when she writes a commentary, I'll check it out. Um... Yeah, there, there's several, um, but those are the ones that I will look to first. Uh, Michael Bird, uh, if when he whenever he writes the occasional commentary, I'll, I'll look. Uh, I like some of the older commentators, like from uh, you know, like Gordon Fee's commentaries are, are typically great. Uh, but th- those are the kind of authors that I normally look for. What about you? Do you have any particular favorites? Um, I think you probably went over some of the ones that uh, you know I. I I just used the um, 
I've actually been you, and I don't know what people are going to think about this, but yeah. eat the meat, spit out the bones. Walter Brueggemann's uh, stuff on Genesis. Yeah, in the Old Testament. Out. Yeah, I didn't even talk about Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, Walkie's stuff's interesting. Um, is it Victor Matthews stuff is interesting? Uh, Longman's okay. stuff's interesting. Uh, Walton's stuff's interesting. So I, I, you know, I, I don't do as much business in the Old Testament as I should, but those are some of the Old Testament guys that I like to. Okay, let's let's take a look now at Keegan Kidder says, what is your interpretation of the significance of Peter, specifically in Matthew 16, being given the keys of the kingdom? Obviously, this is one that comes up quite a bit when you talk with Catholics about papal authority and all those kind of things. Um, but we just got, we just had... Uh, Steve Gregg here, as you mentioned, and Steve's new two-volume work is on is called Empire of the Rising Sun or Risen Sun, and it is about um, the kingdom. And you know, w- whenever you talk about the gospel, a lot of people think, "Oh, well, I know what the gospel is." Uh, Paul tells us in First Corinthians chapter fifteen, verses three and following, he says. This is the gospel I preached while I was yet with you. Um, and it's the death, burial, and resurrection. And then Jesus appeared to all these people. And so people say, well, there's the gospel, the resurrection. And we call the four gospels the four gospels because they contain the story of how that happened. But of course, if you go like to the beginning of Mark, the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom is being talked about, uh, in a, you know, before the resurrection, before the crucifixion. So obviously Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is part of it. But the good news is the good news about the kingdom. And uh, Steve made a big deal about when he was here about talking about how, you know, that was, you know, preaching the kingdom. And he goes through all the different aspects of that. How do you do uh, how how do you function in terms of spiritual combat in in the kingdom and and how do you get in the kingdom and all those kind of things? Well, when you look at um, uh, the context of Matthew 16 and we've got this binding and loosing and we've got the keys to the kingdom, um, the, what, what I think is probably the most natural reading of this is that um, Jesus understands that he's here building the foundation of his church. He's going to leave. And if he's going to leave, um, he's going to send a comforter, right? But um, basically, the operation will continue under the apostles. Why is it significant that it's Peter? Well, it's Peter that preached on the day of Pentecost. And one of the things that's important to understand about the kingdom is the way we advance in the kingdom, the way we, um, the way this kingdom spreads is by the preaching of the gospel and people coming to faith in Christ. And so that's how we gain territory. That's how we advance the kingdom. And that job of uh, unlocking the doors, opening the doors to more people in different categories uh, will will be something that the apostles will carry out. And, and specifically, uh, initially, uh, Peter was the primary part of that, how that happened. So I, that's how I interpret it. It'd be like if I was going to leave and I gave you my keys to my house or something and and off and transferred the um, uh, running of that um, foundation that Jesus lays. Uh, Pritchett, do you have anything you want to add to that? No. Okay. Just... I, I can't wait for the day that you leave the keys to your condo with me when you go out of town and want me to feed Indy. You still have to contend with Sarah. Well, I mean, if your whole family goes. Yeah, because I'm not going to leave without. Right. And so when, when that happens, I'm going to, I intend to redecorate. But really, I, I just want the keys to the the indoor heated pool that y'all have at your complex and make use of that. Somebody asked about can demons be saved? I, I think I saw that question somewhere uh, up there. Let's see. Yeah, here um, we go. What, oh, no, that's that's someone, someone responding, responding to it. To it. I, oh, here we go. 
Do you think demons can be saved? Uh, from someone that they don't, he, I heard from someone that they don't get the same chance, though I forgot for the There's reason. several reasons why I don't think that demons can be saved. And a lot of them so this are, is a bit of speculation, right? Well, no. I mean, Jesus, to, to pay for the sins of humanity, Jesus had to become human, right? And to be, you know, our substitute uh, at the cross, right? He had to take on humanity. He had to become a worthy sacrifice by his his uh, obedience to and faithfulness to God. And then he that kind of substitution, you know, he he took on the form of man. It would he would have to in order to make that kind of atonement for demons, he would have to become like a demon to be their substitute. And there's just that's not going to happen. So there's really why why think that 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 would be made now and why think that there would be another way of of salvation other than a substitutionary uh, way of of stepping in for that so I don't I don't think that there's any way any mechanism of justice that that could serve demons even if even if uh you know, even if so, I mean, is it logically possible that can God just forgive a demon and let him back in? I mean, that's logically, but there's really no biblical foundation to suggest that there's any mechanism for demons to be saved. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't see I don't see why they ever would be, and even if and I don't see why if we take God's perfect justice seriously about what had to happen to Christ in order for sin to be wiped clean for those who put model their faithfulness in him the way he Christ's faithfulness there's just no it makes no sense to me for that Jesus to do that uh, on behalf of demons so um, and there's no evidence that it would even be a thought for Jesus or God to to try to restore them so okay no all right, we have now a question from Jared Craig. If God's nature determines what worlds are feasible, what determines God's nature? If God's nature is self-determined, uh, is it fair to say that any feasible world is one that God desires what? That fuzzy word nature again. Well, I'm happy to say nothing determines God's nature. Right, nature nature is not this goo that God's made out of, and this goo determines what God is. God's not a goo. So this is why when this is why people when they throw around nature they think of some incorporeal invisible goo that God's made out of and this whatever this nature of God it, God's nature is is just is just another way of saying God and God's characteristics and habits and customs because you can't just say that there's this God stuff from which God arises or otherwise God's nature is God's God and God's nature is not God's God's. God's nature doesn't determine who God is. I you think know, that's good. God is the great I am, not the great it is. I think that's so, a good answer to the first part of that question. Mm-hmm. For the second part of that question, here's what I would say. So it is probably, like, let's let's just go with the type of answer um, in this respect. And Pritchett's, uh, Pritchett might disagree with this, but let's just go with the type of answer that... Um, uh, someone like William Lane Craig might give for why God's nature might um, cause a problem for free will or something like that. Well, um, God, you might think, well, God is bound by his nature, 
to do only the best possible thing in any particular circumstance. Of course, that begs the question, is it definitely the case that there's not more than one equally good um, thing that, that he could choose from? But let's just forget all of that. When we're coming to feasible worlds, so for those that don't know, when we're imagining worlds that God could have created, that God would have known he could have created or actualized, you have possible worlds. Well, there's, you know, anything that doesn't involve a logical contradiction is a world that doesn't involve a logical contradiction is a possible world. In other words, um, a world with square circles and married bachelors is not a possible world. So uh, that still leaves you a seemingly infinite number of possible worlds. Uh, there's, there could be a possible world where determinism is true and there could be a, a possible world where uh, libertarian freedom is true, where we really have uh, a robust sense of free will and everyone in that world freely chooses to be saved. That's a possible world because there's nothing in that world that's logically contradictory, I, as far as I can tell. But then we talk about feasible worlds. Okay, well, so, so if you really do give people free will, what shakes out, even though that's a possible world, there's nothing contradictory about it. When you shake it out and you actually give people free will, is there then any world where, where that really happens? And we would say probably not. Um, and so, so then of that, so that's a subset now of possible worlds, feasible worlds. So that's all we mean when we say feasible worlds is worlds that once you give people free will uh, for the purposes of our discussion here, um, these are the worlds that you now have. And then there, and, and then of those worlds, it's not like they're equally all good and God's happy with all those in the same way. No, no, no. There's going to be one of those that God prefers more than the other for whatever goals or purposes that he has. So th that'll be the one that he'll choose, the one that, that, that he wants to choose. But that doesn't mean that all these feasible worlds are equally like, like, you know, beneficial or, or equally meet God's goals or something. Yeah, so I hope that, I hope that all necessarily it. serve his. Yeah, ultimate outcomes. Okay, so. trying to. We uh, flip that screen. I'm dying over here. I'm actually having to listen to what you say because I can't read the comments anymore. Oh, you want me to what? Oh, I, turn I, it back to the screen. Right. Thank you. Um, oh, that's Cam that's Cameron's stream. No, I don't right want there. to see his. You don't stream. want Cameron's no, stream. I want our stream, so I can okay, read our Okay, there comments. you go. There you go, buddy. Oh, and I also uh, want to say, uh, <laughs> uh, check out my uh, True ID Apologetics uh, T-shirt. It's awesome. Uh, if you're not a subscriber to, to Adam Coleman's channel, True ID Apologetics, go subscribe to it immediately after this program. It's awesome. He's awesome. My shirt's awesome. And buy your own shirt and get one just like it so you can be awesome like me. Okay. Uh, Morgan Borders. Is that not the coolest name like ever? Morgan Borders. <laughs> That's a really cool name. Uh, says that she tried to get my book Death is a Doorway and on Amazon and for some reason couldn't get it. What? Uh, it's the only book worth getting that you've written. Oh my no, gosh! It's, it, you know what? It did used to be my favorite. Yeah, I, it's it's saying here that you can buy it. Yeah, it's saying. But look, if you're having trouble, in Morgan, wait, you have it in hardcover. Yeah, I have it in hardcover. Buy that for me for Christmas. Okay, I'll do that. Um, and you, and you write can, me. A you can go note. to um, uh, Morgan. You can go and anyone else who's interested to authorhouse.com and search for it there in their bookstore. That was the self-publishing company I used that time to publish that Let me book. tell you why I'm such a big fan of this book. Because it's not the typical book that apologists write. Core Facts, and I don't mean this in a negative way, but Core Facts is the typical book that an apologist would write. Mm -hmm. You know, um, But 
But Death is a Doorway stood out to me among your literary works, even more so than that fiction stuff that, that, that was pretty decent. Um, as, but that came after. But I hadn't, when I read Death is a Doorway, I wanted to read all your books that you had at the time by the, within like the first year that I worked here so I could get to figure out who, who, who is this guy that took my family from Arkansas with this great promises and, and which were fulfilled by the way this has been an amazing journey thank you but I wanted to know what, what does this guy think and so there was Corfat and I read all your dad's books too and and talk about a, an exceptional writer your dad's a really good writer too uh, I I don't always agree with his theological uh, you know interpretations of, of certain things in his commentaries but as far as it, it's thrilling to read and so I, I understand that that you your ability, probably some of that talent rubbed off on you because uh, you're a pretty good writer. I hope so. But Death is a Doorway was my favorite book because it's just subject matter. And, and the hook was great. You know, the story of the dead bird, all, all of that stuff's great uh, to, to talk about, you know, what death is like. And then you get into near death experiences and all this other stuff. And I just thought, and how do you grapple with that? And I just thought it was fantastic. And maybe it was the, because it was more personal. Mm-hmm. Um, made made it more engaging, but I I just coming out of bio. I had just finished Biola when I started to come o- over here, like within three months. So mm-hmm. I've read all the apologetics apologetics books, uh, and you sort of start to glaze over when you read like the standard Corfax type reasonable faith type books. You mm-hmm. know, just kind of oh, more of this. So you like this book. So I, so I really love that. it. Until Letters of Ignorantia came out. And then I thought that that was the best thing you've ever written. Still the best. I, I don't think I, I that don't, you will top it either. Well, I don't think but, I'm, uh, like, I, I'm not saying this to be arrogant, because it could be that the bar is just really low. But yeah. I think of the low bar that I have set in my own books, uh, Letters from Ignorantia. or. But if yeah, you want a book from an best. apologist that's not like, a standard apologetics book. But it does have near-death experiences and stuff. But I wrote yeah. that book primarily, not just, like you said, to be an apologetics book as such. But, um, I, you know, I was traveling a lot, and people were buying books from me wherever I went. But there were a lot of, like, older people who, frankly, had no interest in apologetics as much as I wish they did. And But they did re- they, they were aware they were going to die very soon. Yes. And so I thought, uh, that's a problem, so this will be good. Yeah, it's, it's, it's great. I'm glad you wrote that book. It's, it's one Thank of the you, standouts. Thank you, Pritchett. I really, in I really your, do and, and the Braxton Hunter canon, it's, it's that and Letters of Ignorantia. <laughs> what a wimpy out. canon it is. Well, too. I mean, you know, Misty, she likes your novels. Mm-hmm. I thought that I've only still <laughs> read the first one. Uh, and thought it was okay. You, you, it, it, for people who like that genre, it's great, I'm sure. Okay. Drew Beatty says, what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and what is being baptized in the Holy Spirit? Well, um, so an important verse for this would be in John 14, 16, Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. So we know that's um, the, the Holy Spirit um, not only is a third person of the Trinity, uh, not in importance, but just um, as the, as we typically name them, and uh, and so he is the one that is to be our reformer and to work with us in this process of sanctification of being more and more like Jesus throughout our lives. And so uh, we get some information. A lot of the information that would be important to you would be in the book of Ephesians. So in Ephesians five eighteen, for example, it says, "Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit." Now, um, I used to think about this a lot whenever you talk about preaching. If a pastor came in 
to preach on Sunday morning and he was drunk, they would have him resigned by the evening service. But he could come in not filled with the Spirit, which is the, is the parallel there, yeah. and nobody would even notice. Uh, partly because it's not as obvious sometimes because people are good at hiding it. Um, but that is something that the Bible says we're supposed to be, not to be drunk on wine, but to be filled with the Spirit. So that gives us some indication of what this means. Now, we all receive the Spirit at the moment of salvation. Ephesians 1.13 tells us, uh, that um, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, gospel of your salvation, believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. So we all have the Holy Spirit. And, um, but, but to be filled with the Spirit seems to, from the information that we have, um, seems to be something that in your life um, you are operating more in line with what the Spirit would have you exactly. to, to, to do yeah. or not. If you imagine the Holy Spirit walking with you through the process of sanctification, and when you listen to the promptings of the Holy Spirit, um, like when you're about to step in a big pile of sin and you feel that impulse, do not do this. If you if you listen to the Holy Spirit in that sense, um, then you, you can you you're walking in the spirit and you're more being filled with the spirit. But when you're not, you're you're not. And that's important. And so um, it seems to be the case that though we all have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that's the function of the whole. That's what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be um, um, a person who is paying attention and relying on the Holy Spirit as they as as he. Yeah, the Holy Spirit is a person. So, you know, the expression filled with the Holy Spirit, don't think of your body as a glass. And then how much of the Holy Spirit is poured into you, you know, from your toes to. I have this much or this much or this much. Although that's uh, not a bad analogy. Really. Uh, like, are you it's, really it's, walking uh, with him yeah, that much? But, but, but think, if you remember that the Holy Spirit is a person, mm-hmm. and when you're when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, it's is is opposed to being filled with with that person's way of life, way of living, way of prompting, way of following, mm-hmm. as opposed to being filled with anger or filled with rage or filled with sadness. It's, it's, th- that's what, you know, when you think about being filled with something, that's the kind of way you should think about it. And, and you know, to be immersed into the Holy Spirit. Because that's what baptism means. Yeah, to, 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 be, to be immersed in that. And, and like when, when Jesus says in the Great Commission, you know, baptize the nations, you know, have them be immersed, immerse the nations in the name of the Father and the Son. So whatever you're doing in the nations, it needs to be saturated with, whether that means water baptism or, or whatever, people can disagree. But ultimately what he's saying is when you're disciple making, you know, what needs to be all over all of your actions in the process of discipling the nations and, and baptizing these, immerse mm-hmm. the nations in the name of the Father, Son, and, and the that's Holy exactly Spirit, right. Instead of Anything else? That, that, of that's other exactly right because priorities. one of the problems is this term is like transliterated but not translated. The, the term baptism, partly because it's been preserved as a word that is. Uh, it, I mean, I think probably part of the reason that it's been preserved that way is to Make because it a we, word. yeah, we have like an idea of what that means in a religious context. Yeah. But as Pritchett says, it just means to be immersed. Yeah. So you understand, like when the when the well when the apostles, when the disciples, when John the Baptist, when Jesus were talking about water baptism, all they're talking about is being immersed in water as um, a ceremonial way of showing uh, a new identity. But yeah. w- but but to be immersed when they elsewhere say to be immersed in the Spirit, they're just saying immersed still. So, yeah. w- but the re- but because that was kept there, baptism, we get all hung up on it like it's some kind of um, 
special event like a second like and this is where some denominations and some perspectives want to make it a, a second event that happens later on as a distinct event yeah. uh, on its own um and and really what our position seems to be I, I mean i knew what my position was i'm glad to see that pritchett agrees with me that um it just means to be immersed in the spirit and it's not unlike being filled with the spirit which yeah. we've already discussed yeah and your initial See, you can't artificially separate any more than you can artificially bind together the water baptism with the spirit baptism, because that that seems to be kind of ways of like thinking of them, like like you said, as event oriented things. Um, but I don't, I, I don't think you can artificially separate them or ar- artificially unite them in the same way. It's just when you're baptized in water. I mean, we wait in our churches, you know. Well, we're going to schedule the baptism for the third Sunday of the every quarter or whatever. You know, that's not how it worked back then. I don't have a problem with it working the way it works now, so that Grandma could be there with the camera and you can do all that. You, you know, I, I don't, I don't care about that. Um, my preference is, oh, hey, there's water. Let's go get this over with. But I, I don't think like instantaneous like. This is where you get back into all these weird metaphysical conversations. People don't think about what they're saying when they when talking about it. Like when you're finally poured over or sprinkled or immersed completely underwater, make sure the last hair it gets underwater. Or you're not really baptized. All of this kind of stuff, and then that's when the Holy Spirit zaps you, and all of a sudden you've been, you know, invisibly baptized. Yeah, I don't, I don't get into those kind of conversations, and I, and, and quite frankly, I, I think they're a bit silly. Here's a tough. Here's one that some people. When, might When you get saved, tough. you're baptized in the spirit, and you you should be baptized in water. That's so. Uh, numbers thirty one fifteen through nineteen. Oh, by the way, thank you again, uh, Daniel Apologetics, for the five dollar foreign money. Um, thoughts, guys? Any Bible commentary recommendations? Well, I don't know what Bible to recommend to you, or what commentary to recommend to you on this. But um, but I'll read the passage because it's pretty rough. Um, you you are highlighting verse 15. Uh, so have you allowed all the women to live? He asked them. They were the ones followed Balaam's advice and enticed the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord in the Peor incident so that a plague struck the Lord's people. Now kill all the boys and kill every woman who has slept with a man. But save for yourselves, every girl who has not slept with a man. Um, so this obviously looks troubling to modern eyes because um yeah you have this idolatrous people and you have women who were not innocent in that you know a lot of times we think well you know the the, the women and the children they're innocent in all of this but if these women were enticing israelite men to be unfaithful then they they have culpability in this and so that's a important important point of that part of that and uh and so this is an, this is part of the process of keeping Israel separate from the peoples around them, which is very important to God and important that they don't do that so that they don't um, worship idols um, and, and so that they keep their eyes on the one true God. Now, we, we know elsewhere in Scripture um, that whenever this was done, when something like this was done to uh, take a, a woman who hasn't slept with a man from a culture where let's understand they would have been left completely alone now after this uh, after this happens with no way to provide for themselves 
the, the most, the best thing for them to do, and I know this doesn't sound good to modern ears, is to be incorporated into Israel. And that's actually a mercy to them. And the way that they would be incorporated into Israel would be to marry an Israel, Israelite man. But we find out elsewhere that, that you can't just take them and just marry. And it's not like a, it's the way this is shaped up by atheists often is, oh, this is just a sexually explicit thing. Just grab them and have your way with them. That's not at all what's going on. In fact, they have to provide for a period of mourning for this person. Um, and, um, and, and it's, I think it's like a month. I think it's, a, I'd have to look, but it's like a month of mourning for this, for their family and these sorts of things. And then they can marry, but then when they marry that, that person is a wife, um, not just, not just, uh, uh, an object. So uh, even though it's not pleasant to, um, modernize, and I understand that, uh, this sort of thing doesn't look, uh, uh, is, un, is inexcusable to some people. Uh, given the cultural context, I'm not sure uh, that there's anything wrong with this plan as a way of protecting these women that would be left homeless, basically. Yeah. Bridget, anything else? Yeah, just rem- well, li- like you keep reminding about modern sensitivities. I, I, I'm, I'm less of the, the whole world doesn't revolve around what we think is, you know, dainty at, at, in our time. The ancient world's a harsh place. So, you know. Okay, John Buck, uh, man, I feel bad. First of all, you shouldn't have had to pay me $5 to get me to answer this. Uh, You did reach out to me, and I meant to get back with you. I saw it even this morning, and I'm so sorry. Yes, you pick next week. I'll pretty well be free um, uh, during the day between uh, 8 and 5 Central Time. You let me know. We'll set it up. Why don't you have the comments back on that big screen where blind Pritchett can read them? Oh, sorry. No, not, not that. That screen. On up here laptop. yeah you usually have them right just, there okay all right uh, yeah there we go i can see again um here's a question that we already answered what is your view on the baptism of the holy spirit man that's interesting that that came up i wonder if that's something some other big youtuber brought up or something that's getting all these all this uh all this uh attention um yeah, so here's a good question. Did God intend for Israel to have kings or was God compromising with the people of Israel? He was compromising. compromising. He was letting them have something. Yeah, he that, warned that them, don't have a king because do they're going to do this, they're going to do that, they're going to overtax you, they're going to store up all of these horses and holdings for themselves and all that. And guess what? Come, <laughs> come around with the, uh, you read, you know, Saul and David and Solomon and, and subsequently, what did they do? Exactly what God told them that they would do back in Deuteronomy. Yeah, and you know, this is another good thing we got from Steve Gregg this week. I, I had heard him say this years ago, but it, but it's it's true. We, we often think about the period of the judges when Israel didn't have a king and they were more like a, a loosely connected, because of religious ties, tribal community that, uh, of, of various communities. The tri- You got these 12 tribes, and they... Uh, and the and it says in Judges a few times, every man did what was right in his own eyes. Mm-hmm. So basically what would happen is people would function more or less doing what they thought they should do. Yeah, and Israel and then, misbehave, and they'd go into captivity, and, and they needed to be delivered from it. And a it judge and would that. come along, and, yeah. and they'd be good for a little while. But preachers always look at it, everyone did what was right in their own eyes as a bad thing. They, they would say everyone did what was right in their own eyes that's horrible. That's, you know what? That's where we're living today in America. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes and look what it's getting us. Well, yes and no, and more no than yes, because the truth is, if you have a king, everyone has to do what's right in that king's eyes. 
But if everyone's doing like a human king, but if everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes and they recognize that God is their king, which is what God wanted for Israel, and they're and they're doing what was right in their own eyes as they understand what God wants them to do, well, then everyone's going to do the right thing. And in fact, if you question that, um, if you count up the uh, period of time in the book of Judges or in the period of the Judges where uh, they were actually not doing the right thing and there was problems, uh, it's like about one-fourth of the time. So a lot of the time they were doing uh, the right thing, even though it doesn't look like that when you read straight through the book. So doing what's right in your own eyes isn't necessarily a bad thing if what's right in your own eyes is doing what God wants you to do. So yeah. I think that's most an important of them. Were, thing you get the mention. impression though that most of them were doing bad things because they kept. Getting you get pushed. that impression, yeah. Yeah, Judges is a fun book to go through with teenagers. I mean, that's where we're at right now in our devotionals. Not not the most inspirational devotional material to be sure, but you know, that's that's where we're at. Punchbowl haircut says, "Have you heard of transable people?" They who have limbs amputated or permanently blind themselves because they feel like their body is meant to be that way. Um, yeah, I, I might make for cool video fodder. Well, I, I know what you mean by that. We try not to just have video fodder. <laughs> we try to we try to uh, things that we think are powerful and important to address. However, that could be one of those things because um, it goes back to every these everybody doing what's right in their own eyes in the wrong way. Like I think I should be this, and so I'm going to be that. You know. Um, I remember hearing about a guy, there's a guy who I think has one arm in Hollywood and he did that to himself because he was an actor and he couldn't get any roles and he recognized that uh, movie studios need one-armed actors occasionally and if he um, made himself physically fit and attractive enough and then also um, only had one arm, he might get more gigs. And so he cut off his arm and guess what? He did get more gigs. Mm. It was like a weird thing, but... Um, yeah, that's really interesting. Look, yeah, I, your body isn't yours. This is so churchy, I know, but it's churchy because it's true. Your body belongs to God. Um, I, I don't tell people, like, for instance, that there's anything sinful about getting a tattoo, necessarily, depending on what the tattoo is and all that. But it is, this is a personal conviction type thing. It's the reason I don't have a tattoo. There have been times I've wanted to have a tattoo. It's the reason I never pierced my ear, even though I did want to pierce you're my in ear. A bald, you're a bald apologist, so like James White, over the course of your life, you'll eventually get tattooed. You think like I'll have a tattoo? Did. Yes. Well, that's I'll the, take That's I'll the take, trajectory of bald I'll take apologists. That. I'll take yeah. that bet. Yeah. But no, I don't think you should dismember yourself. I don't think that you should uh, disable yourself intentionally. Yeah, I, I don't either. I mean, that's <laughs> just, that's just sound... Like, I mean, I know that somebody's going to ask, though, okay, what's the difference between that guy and the guy that was trapped in the mountain, had to cut off his arm so he could escape, uh, so that he could live, right? But this guy did did that, in your example, so that he could act. Well, I mean, there's other places to act and not make it in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Plus, there are people who naturally or by accident are disabled in that way who could have had those acting gigs that he... That he took it from him, right? Intentionally, so that that just seems a little shady to me too. So I, I don't know that. Yeah, people right. who are disabled, you know, let them have those. Don't let them chop have those your gigs. arm off. Come on. Um, all right, Trevor Adams, uh, thank you for that super chat. Says, does the climb only negate the possibility of a timeless past? Does it rule out an indeterministic past of a timeless space and matter? You know, so. So here's the thing with the Kalam and that. Um, yes, it does rule out. Well, one of the defenses of um, premise two would rule out the idea of 
um, any series of events that are past infinite. So now you, you've, you've ruled out past infinite in a sense by saying timeless, but of course that's the rub. In a timeless state, you can't have um, events happening because those events that would be happening are, would, would, would have to be temporal. So you'd have to have, uh, and so actually you're hitting close to one of the things that I use to argue that the cause of the universe must be a personal agent because um, it, whatever, uh, so the cause of the, in a spaceless timeless state, you can't have determinism functioning to cause a universe because there is nothing and nowhere. And so you can't have determinism, but you also can't have randomness or what we might call indeterminism in that sense, because there's no time for events to happen in. So the only thing that makes sense is state event causation, where you have, you go from a state of timeless nothingness to an event, the, the existence of the universe, the beginning of the universe. And that would, if you can't have determinism and you can't have randomness, then all that's left is a libertarian free choice. And in fact, we do observe that in people, not perfectly in the same way, but like if a person, if a man is sitting and then all of a sudden he stands, he went from a state of sitting to an event standing. And so personal agents are able to do that. And a libertarian choice requires neither randomness nor, determin nor determinism. So, it, so actually your question does hit to, though I do think it rules out the kind of thing you're talking about, it actually does provide a good reason to believe that this, cause of the beginning of the universe is a personal agent. Um, Pritchett, anything to say about that? No, I thought that was spot on. Bernie five <laughs> says from the fictional world of, of um, Logan's run says <laughs> Matt Dillahunty has an unreasonably high epistemic, uh, epistemically uh, epistemic standard for God's existence. Does he have the same standard for the rest of reality? No, obviously. Yeah, not. I mean, that's a question for Matt. I can't answer for Matt, but by observation, he he can't. He does. He can't. Right. Or he couldn't function right. in yeah, the world. No, he does. He, he, does he um, sit down in a chair? Right. Yes. OK, so no, he doesn't. Um, let's see. I'm not seeing. Let's see. Question. Question. Here. we. Here's something else. Man, Ooh. thank you all for all these super chats. Red skillet. Red skillet. If the you know, 96 red skillet. skillet. Well, skillet. That's a Christian rock band. And have you ever heard skillet? Yeah, I actually saw them in concert in like the early 2000s, I think, um, at Toad Suck Arkansas Festival thing in Conway. <laughs> is that what it was called, Toad Suck? It's the Toad Suck Days in Conway, <laughs> Arkansas. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, um, yeah. The the first one of the early the first Skillet album I thought was pretty darn good. Ninety six. Um, first song. What I on liked the first about Skillet, Skillet really was the cello player and the violinist more than the band. I thought they were. Well, awesome. it was one. It's then one, I found out they're not even like officially band members. I was like, that's weird, what? Stupid. Of course there are. No, they're just touring musicians. There's they're, a guy and his wife. They're not. They're not. Uh, Isn't listed. it a guy and his wife? I don't know. It's a bass player is the lead singer. I thought that was no, no, cool. no, no. I'm talking about the cello player and the violinist. Oh, they just. They and hired then I them. found out that they're not actual band members. They're just touring musicians, and I hate that. Everybody does that, though. Yeah, no, I. Yeah, and I hate that. I mean, Make them band members do and that. do it in the studio. What you do live? The killers or you don't do, do it at too. all. You're phony and fake. Well, you're not. Okay. This touring musician business. If <laughs> Look, you, if you if you want if you want armless uh, uh, the one armed actors to be able to have work, then you should be all for session players getting to go on tour. I'm all for session players to be made band members so they can share in the same amount of money. What if they the don't want that? Members. What if they don't want that? Oh, of course they. 
if the universe did not have a beginning, does that mean that there is no room for God? Well, no. Um, there, in fact, um, the, um, if the universe did not have a beginning, it still requires an explanation for its existence. Yeah. So, like on the B theory of time, you have the whole timeline all at, like. On the A theory of time, we're passing, like, the future will exist, but it doesn't exist yet. And the past did exist, but it doesn't exist now. So that, like, 1968 did exist, but it's not somewhere now so that you can go to it. That's the A theory of time. The B theory of time says, no, it's, it exists. The whole timeline exists simultaneously. Um, that's not even the right way to say it, but it's hard to say things in a tenseless way when you're talking about this. So, but it's like the whole thing is in a snow globe. Well, that's actually the most prominent view among physicists is my understanding is the B theory, which is nice for those of you that like time travel because it makes time travel possible. But um, the, on a B theory of time, there are people who have argued that you could actually have a past infinite universe, but that's still, but you would still need an, an explanation for the universe. And that's where you get to like a contingency argument where you'd have to say, okay, well, um, you know, this cell phone didn't have to exist. It exists contingently based on something else. And it seems like um, the universe is still a contingent thing. Uh, and so, you know, it still requires an explanation and we could go into that sort of an argument. So yeah, you'd still, you still need to do that. Golly, um, there, someone's talking about evanescence, evanescence. <laughs> I've already given my opinion of Evanescence. I saw them at Vino's in Little Rock before they signed their record deal. And yes, they were trying to quasi-pass themselves off as a Christian band until they got signed, and then they pretended like their entire existence in Little Rock as a Christian band never happened. And so they got some friends of mine that were in a Christian band called Mind Rage to be session musicians, but not band members. Because only I question Ben and Amy were. I'm interested band in that members. because I like music. Yeah, but based on how poorly videos we do about music do, I yeah. question these people care. Yeah, but yeah, <laughs> did Pritchett go with a classic T-shirt for the tri blend or, or for the tri blend for his True ID Apologetics T-shirt? That tri-blend is very comfortable. Yeah, tri-blend t-shirts are awesome, but that's not the one I went with because they're more expensive. You're in clothing of yeah. mixed fabric, Pritchett? Yeah, well, I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. <laughs> All right. Uh, what, but uh, yeah, Evanescence was a Christian band, then the not, and then I think like, I don't think they have anything to do with Christianity now. I, of course, the two people that started it aren't even together anymore as the band, so it's really just the Amy Lee band. So. Derek, thank you for that super chat. So appreciate that. What do you guys think of the idea that God's ultimate motivation in everything he does is to glorify himself, that his self-glorification is his number one goal and priority? Pritch, I've been talking a lot. Uh, I, I mean, if it is fine, there's nothing that actually suggests that that's his Above all else, number one thing. I, I don't even, I don't know why we try to, like, what's number one on God's agenda? What's number two? The, the self-glorification. He created uh, everyone so that he would be, you know, I, I don't know if that's, I don't know that that's his number one goal or priority. Um, it could be. Uh, I, I'm not against the idea. I just... I see, like, everything God does is it seems like to be a huge priority for God. So I, I don't know how to— You know what glorifies God is people coming to faith in Him. Right, but also God's glorified in, in the execution of justice and wrath, too. I agree with the Calvinists when they say that. I just don't know—I don't know if I think—what's what, God's number one priority and concern? To, to glorify Himself above all other things. Maybe. 
I know that gl- God being glorified and God receiving glory is important. I think displaying his glory and splendor is important to him. I, I, I just don't know how to say, is that his number one self? Whatever he wants, I, I don't. For, uh, whatever he personally yeah. wants, we know what he wants for us, and that is to love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, so I don't know if it's his number one. I don't know. I'll ask him when I get to heaven. How do we know the Bible is the word of God? Well, I'll give you a simple apologetic, and there's a lot, every time this comes up, it's in a live stream, so I can't go through it like, a, like in an hour-long show, but maybe I will. But here's a simple, and I actually do have a video um, where I was speaking at a church and gave a whole case for this. But I'll give a very abbreviated thing right here. Uh, if we believe that the resurrection happened, which, of course, we have apologetics to try and demonstrate that the resurrection happened as a historical event, then what that means is that the biggest miracle claim in the Gospels is true, that the Gospel authors were telling the truth about the biggest claim that they made. So um, then why should we be skeptical about lesser miracle claims if the biggest one uh, was true? It, it, we can't guarantee that those other ones are true, but it, it's reasonable then to believe that they're telling the truth about these other things, like the walking on water, the, um, the healing of the blind, the turning of the water into wine, things like that. So, um, so if they're telling the truth, if we, if we can trust the gospel authors, because they've proven themselves honest about the biggest issue, well, then that probably means we can trust the book of Acts, because the author of the book of Luke, Luke, authored the book of Acts. And there's really not much uh, dispute about that that matters. So if you can trust the author of the book of Acts, he certainly wants you to know that you can definitely trust the Apostle Paul, because the most central figure of the second half of the book of Acts is the Apostle Paul. What about ha- the first 10? Which, a- which has you off and running with... Uh, most of the New Testament. There's, there's also a guy named Peter that was pretty. Peter was important, in yeah. The first part of it. But Acts. we've already established that we can trust Peter, yeah. especially if you believe that Mark is the testimony of Peter. And so, um, and so, then the other gospel or the other New Testament authors are either uh, people who are already affirmed by the previous stuff we've discussed, or, close or they were incredibly close associates, like like that, or Jesus's so, brother. Jesus's brother, yeah. So so you've got so that so the New Testament, it's reasonable to believe that the New Testament is telling you the truth. Okay, on the, on those grounds, it's not a guarantee, and it doesn't give you biblical inerrancy, but what it does give you is reason to believe this is true and authoritative. Now, if you can trust also that the Gospels are pretty well giving you the truth, then in the Book of Luke, Jesus affirms um, that the law. The writings and the prophets are about him. Uh, so he's affirming the, the, the validity of three um, sections of Scripture. And those sections of Scripture actually are the sections that make up the entirety of the Old Testament. And so, um, and so we actually know what the Old Testament, we, we kind of have some good in- indication of what the Old Testament was at the time of Jesus. Josephus mentioned that there were 22 books in what the Jews consider to be scripture. Now, if you look at our Old Testament, there are not 22 books, but you also have to understand that many of the books that we have in our Old Testament were originally one book, but have been turned into two books. So if you grew- well, And the Minor Prophets has been turned into 12 books. Which right, was which was 12. one book. Yeah. You know, so if you, so if you, if you group those all together in their original, um, uh, you know, the way they originally Categories. were, you get 22 books. So, uh, so anyway, if Jesus affirms the Old Testament, and we have good reason to believe in the New Testament because of the resurrection, then I actually think that we have a pretty good reason to believe that whether you think it's inerrant or not, that it's true in, in a general sense at the very least and authoritative for believers because Jesus gives it to us that way. So that's my answer to that. 
Pritchett. Anything That's to my add? answer to that too. All right. Also, I've never heard anyone else use that reasoning. I came up with that, uh, but I'm sure someone has uh, out there. Um, and uh, let's see. Uh, I don't know. I don't know where they asked it, but uh, Hervey Schmervy asked what my favorite video game was. What's your favorite video game, Pritchett? Super Mario Brothers Three. That's a good pick. I probably was never more excited for a video game because it was sold out everywhere. You couldn't get it. Yeah. And my dad's secretary's daughter, who was basically like a surrogate sister, I miss her. She's passed away now. Yeah. But she um but she bought Mario three for me. Oh man. It was hey. awesome. But probably my, my favorite now is probably um at the moment, oh man, people are gonna call me unspiritual and all kinds of things. But it's one of those um um battle royale games called PUBG. Um, and it's, uh, in fact, uh, it's becoming a problem at, at night, late at night. It's the only time I get to play it and I play it with another guy that works here at Trinity, Andy, and yeah. we play it a long time. So, um, yeah, there you go. I wonder what the questions are going to be about that. Uh, let's see. There's a Molinism question. Hey, I love this. Kit Horton says, I'm doing Sunday school with the teens this Sunday on Romans one and using your nearly way galaxy as an example, what happens when we trade God's truth for a lie. Uh, that is from, uh, thank you so much, Kit. That is from, um, the chron uh, no, that is from letters from Ignorantia. That is, uh, an, some imagery that I use there, the nearly way galaxy. I tried to put a lot of little things in there that were CS Lewis like, because, He's my favorite. Um, uh, just to the programmer, I've not read Walton on the Canaanite conquest stuff. That's why I, I don't know what I think of that. I've read Walton's uh, ancient Near East during thought in Old Testament and a couple of other things from his Job commentary, but I don't just <clears throat> sit around and read Old Testament scholarship much. So. The nerdy theist, greetings nerdy theist, says, how important is or how high do you hold the doctrine of inerrancy? You want to go first or me first, Pritchett? I think we're going to get basically the same answer. I personally hold it high for me. Mm -hmm. I couldn't possibly care any less whether you affirm it or not. I could care less. I mean, I don't think it's a requirement for Christianity. I don't necessarily... I'm not, I'm not convinced that the arguments against inerrancy sufficiently defeat inerrancy in the way that I understand inerrancy, but I also am unconvinced as, as, as good of an effort as it was, uh, that the Chicago <clears throat> statement on biblical inerrancy has any sort of, uh, it ultimately does not do right by the doctrine of inerrancy in my opinion either. So About two I've already years. given my statement on inerrancy. My statement is on inerrancy is the Bible is true in everything that it says in the way that it intended to say it. It, we did an episode on inerrancy uh, about two years ago, and we hammered out what we thought about it. But um, what, I, what I think I would say um, is I, I agree with that definition. Uh, what I normally say is, is a little truncated from that uh, in a way that Pritchett thinks is important. But um, I, I say that the Bible um, is correct in everything that it intends to teach, right? Everything that it intends to teach. So that brings in genre issues and all kinds of things. Now, what we, what everyone says, everyone says, except for maybe some King James only people is that it's in the, the, the autographs are inerrant. The originals are inerrant. We don't have those. So 
you're going to find things. There could be scribal errors where someone was copying a manuscript and, and there was an error there. There could be things like that, but none of those things that could might be there affect any major doctrine. Yeah. Well, so. what everyone, technically what everyone says, uh, I think Bonson's right about this, is technically, it's not just the original autographs, but that the original autographic text is inerrant. So wherever the original autographic text from either the original autograph or wherever that text from the original autographic autograph is duplicated exactly, that's inerrant. Um, Pritchett, here's a question for you. How did Paul use the word translated apostle? Depends on, I mean... Depends on the context? Right, I mean, it could just... Do you have any idea what he's getting at? One, it could be, no. could just okay. mean capital A apostle could sometimes be lower... I love Zom. A be, apostle. Be, be more clear, yeah. Zom. No, I mean, I, I think it depends. Sometimes he meant, like, the apostles, and sometimes he's just talking about, like... Somebody was sent people somewhere. People sent somewhere, yeah. Zom... Um, remember this always, um, uh, specificity is the soul of narrative. All right. Uh, do you think that, oh, here, I'll put it up on the screen. Do you think that justification and sanctification are often mixed together by many Christians today? Yes. Yes. I think that many people think they got saved and that's all there is to it. And so I'm done. And so I've got my guns. I've got my, uh, my wife. I, I go to church. Don't ask much more of that than that out of me, but really, um, justification is something that happens toward the beginning. Uh, I mean, it's 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 not the whole ball of wax with your salvation, but it's it's a piece of that. And then you begin from there, and and that's just the start. That's why often in theology we talk about you were saved. All right, there was a moment where you entered the kingdom. You were saved. You are being saved. That's the process of sanctification. You're coming like Jesus. And you, there's a sense in which you will be saved when you're glorified, the doctrine of glorification. I think so. they're mixed together in the right way. If you uh, look at people like Michael Byrd, who kick back against the idea that there is no uh, transformative aspects to justification as well as sanctification. So, I, And I think he's right about that. You can't just, you can't eliminate all transformative ideas out of justification and punt them all to sanctification um so i i think that's right um I, now i i don't i don't think that that we can go with the seeing justification all the way the way our catholic friends do with like some sort of infused righteousness um but i'm i'm certainly fine with the incorporated righteousness view of that so i don't actually mind a little bit of mixing with there so you know it's that's one of those places where people like me and nt wright and michael bird are probably swimming in the tiber with no desire to swim to either shore <laughs>